1: ...to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier, so let's find out why. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. It's been an amazing few weeks of sport and this Rugby World Cup in France has really delivered some remarkable games and everyone's eyes are fixed completely on what promises to be an epic showdown between the All Blacks and the Springboks. If you're a regular listener to the show, then welcome back. And to anyone that's new to the show, a very warm welcome. Over the last few years, we've been fortunate enough to interview some incredible thinkers and performers from rugby to the Royal Ballet and from hockey to harvard professors so do click through some of the past episodes and subscribe to listen to people like eddie jones kieran reed sirian mcgeekin shane warne sue campbell gareth southgate and many more as for today's guest i met him when i was supporting the england rugby team early in eddie jones's tenure he was the kicking coach working alongside the likes of owen farrell and george ford he's renowned for his relentless perfectionism and ability to perform under pressure, and that drop goal in 2003 was probably the greatest example. He won many accolades and amassed over 1200 points in international rugby – a record only passed by the legendary All Blacks player Dan Carter. He spent the final years of his playing career at Toulon in the south of France where he was adopted and adored by the local fans and kicking 15 points of their 18-10 victory in the top 14 title decider secured his legacy. He became a poster boy and a role model for a whole generation of rugby fans around the world. And I'm so grateful to him for sharing his story with us. Here's a taste of what's to come.
0: You hear people saying, well, I am who I am, I can't change. You kind of, like, well, then get ready for frustration, get ready for, um, for burnout. The thought comes in, what about me? What about my identity? What if I lose this? What will happen to my identity? The other part of fear I think that I've unpacked from my own experience is that it's a very energy expensive state. Matt Dawson breaks and we get to it more or less under the post where it comes to time for me to kick. And had I been in a operating through the mind, through thought in any way in that final moment, I think I would have froze.
1: Johnny's video insights and strategies will soon be added to Sporting Edge's digital platform, which is a bit of a Netflix-style membership library of world-class thinkers that our clients use to inspire their teams across the business. If you visit sportingedge.com, then you can join for free for a whole month using the code PODCAST100 in the checkout as you register so let's get straight into the conversation where we go very deep very early so get your goggles on take a deep breath because there's no doggy paddle or warm ups needed here we're diving straight in to mindset identity and why trying to maintain the perfect image of ourselves may be stopping us from enjoying our life and causing burnout first of all how important do you think mindset is in success and happiness?
0: Um, that's a really good question. And it's a, it's a difficult one for me to answer quickly, but there's no doubt about it. For me, a quote I hear a lot and I really like is that who we are doesn't have a mindset. Who we are is a mindset. And I think, therefore, the, the power and the fulfillment of being able to fully commit to a mindset and one that feels like it's leading you towards your passion, that it's excited about the next moment, that it's um, liberating, that it connects you to other people, that allows you space to breathe and be spontaneous. It's hugely important, but in order to be able to play with your mindset, there has to be a connection or some kind of grounding to what's behind the mindset. What is truly you? If your idea is just a mindset, if your idea of who you are, your identity is just a mindset, what's playing with the mindset? What has control of moving your mindset? What has control of of adapting and changing and exploring? And it's in that space that I feel is the, the happiness and the fulfillment and the power. The mindset is a way of channeling it. So we have this, I think, innate sort of self-worth and, and feeling of, of being deserving and the power in that space. And the key is how to get that out. And when our identity works against that, when our mindset works against that, it's painful. That's the feeling of pain. But when our mindset's more aligned with it, channels it out, that's the feeling of flow, of, of expression. And I think that's, that's the balance there. The mindset is hugely important. Um, but in order to be able to to work with it, there needs to be an exploration that goes deeper than mindset into some of the stuff which doesn't change.
1: So a lot of people are talking about burnout and, and dissatisfaction and frustration. Um, how would you describe that mindset and what is it that's causing people that sort of frustration?
0: I think any identity or mindset is going to have a shelf life and I think we outgrow it because the power of what we have in us is without boundary but a mindset has boundaries. It has, you know, you have these lines of what's acceptable, what's unacceptable. These lines of what I want and what I don't want and what, uh, maybe you need what's right and wrong in some respects in order to guide yourself through. But those are limited and what's behind it is unlimited. And at some point the unlimited just says, I'm done with this now. And if we don't move, that's where I think these feelings come in. If we're not able to explore more of who we can be if we stick with this idea that we are who we are and you hear people saying, oh, I am who I am, I can't change, you're kind of like, well, then get ready for frustration, get ready for, um, for burnout. Because what's underneath that has no shelf life, it has no limits. Um, and I think therefore, for me, it's, it's a bit like the burnout that came with me as a rugby player is that the rugby identity was just a shirt I was wearing for that time. Now, if I continue to wear that shirt when I'm trying to relax on holiday and I start feeling the frustration, now that's on me. That's not, life's not frustrating me, even though that shirt will be telling me, oh, well, it's because of this, it's because of that, it's because of that. The fact is, is that there's a beautiful way to channel, I think, all that we are and fully um, make the most of every moment and express ourselves right here, right now. But we have to be able to move and adapt who we are to fit, you know, to plug into the socket almost of now. Because otherwise you know, we decide what kind of plug formation we are and we walk around saying it just doesn't fit anywhere until that few moments a week where we say, oh, now it fits. But you know, every moment is important. Every moment can be lived fully. And I think a lot of that is down to the immovability of who we are and the losing touch with, with the fact that on the inside, we're no one, which means we can be everything on the outside. So, do you
1: think the key then is adapting and learning and accepting rather than trying to control and be tied? It's almost like these two things are opposite ways of coping. One is to try and control the environment, and one is to try and accept the environment because the environment's so unpredictable and, and changeable. Which, you know, because obviously a lot of sports psychology and, and leadership is about how can we control this environment? And what you're saying actually, the fulfillment comes from adapting and exploring and being curious about it? How do you compare and contrast those two? The
0: power of any performance is being fully present and having all your faculties in play in that moment. Um, And every person I've ever asked and every experience I've ever had is that when I feel amazing is when all my faculties are in play and I never have an issue with any relationships. I respond to whatever's in my environment so beautifully and powerfully um, and therefore it's my job to work towards that connection with, with my, my true self, to find my fulfillment in every moment so that I can then have that far more instinctive, intuitive response in my performance. And one thing I've also found is that whatever the game plan was, whatever the structure is, I don't forget it. I always know it. I always know what the direction is. I always know why I'm here. This idea that spontaneity has something to do with carelessness, because, oh, well, you have to be this, which means that if you're gonna be spontaneous and adaptable, it means that you're not very structured. I think that's just back to the same place where people say, well, I'm just a spontaneous person. That's who I am. Instead of understanding, no, we can be absolutely both. We can store in our minds all this important information, and we can learn things and understand them, but our performance must take place through the now is if our performance takes place through the same preparation, through the identity which is full of, or is made out of information and rules and laws, then we cannot be fully present. But when our performance takes place through the now, and our mind is full of understandings, those two are never in argument with each other. But when we are simply, well this is who I am, I'm spontaneous, it's another way of saying "I I have permission to be careless and now I'm a bit like this. And when people say, well, this is who I am, I'm very rigid, I like to know how things are, it's just another excuse to say, I don't, you know, I don't like venturing into the unknown and, and really um, finding out what I'm capable of. So for me, the, the balance, if you like, is learning and understanding structure, but not letting that become who you are, understanding that performance always takes place in the now, whereas learning and all that stuff is, is stuff that you can store from the past and everything. But whatever you learn, the way you learn it, at that time is actually largely irrelevant. It's just data. And I think this is just to finish on this point, certainly from my perspective, when my memory became a story about who I am, it traps me. But when my memory is just data, my memories are not things that are defined in any way. Um, It allows me to perform and just pick those bits of data and shape them according to what's needed right now. Or your story is this and you take it with you back to that plug analogy. It doesn't fit, but actually we've got the capacity, all that information that I've learned over my life, I can play with it still. And I think when you say about what's the relationship, the relationship is, the power is to have some distance between you and your identity so that you can play with it so that you can enjoy yourself so that you can explore yourself and take care of yourself. All these things involve distance. If there's no distance, you don't enjoy yourself. Yourself just basically leads you round and and you have your, your difficult moments, your frustration, your burnout.
1: Yeah, fascinating. And going back to the rugby, this idea of the game is uncertain, the game is unfolding, I need to control the moment. So that's where we see pre-kick routines coming in and you're obviously famous for the iconic, um, and repeatable metronomic kick and the stance that you had, you know, a sequence of steps that, the, the crouch that you had, tell us, tell us why performance routines are important and what that was giving you, uh, in, in that moment.
0: It, for me, it's, it's basically back to this space between preparation and performance, that like everything's a performance. This is the other thing that maybe goes missing is if when we're preparing, that's also a performance of preparing. So it's to be fully engaged with. But when we're in the space of it's about getting ready for a bigger moment that's next, it creates major issues. So you look at uh, a person in my position playing number 10, they're receivable, um, and there's defenses flying up and there's noise everywhere and there's you know aggression there's this there's different people in different places with different options going on and all this stuff happens in a moment and yet it's dealt with just incredibly so easily so effortlessly so beautifully and then the referee blows his whistle and says right let's let, it's an a penalty for you guys and that same player now starts looking all over the place as he's waiting for his or her tee um to come on the field and it's suddenly like Oh, and it was all this preparation. Now, the idea was what was happening in that moment before is far more challenging than what's about to happen now. But it was done in that intuitive, connected way where every moment, no moment is more important. Whereas now suddenly there's a big moment coming and we need to prepare for it. And what it ultimately means is the thought comes in, what about me? What about my identity? What if I lose this? What will happen to my identity? Whereas in that moment, anything could happen and yet everything's dealt with so beautifully. And even if it doesn't happen right, the response is so seamless. Um, And it's that the, the big challenge in all of this is that the ultimate control comes through allowing yourself to be fully present. But when your mind is about this next big moment, so much of you is in that imagination of what may or may not happen, so little of you is available, and so it feels terrible. There is no truth to, oh, there's pressure. It's simply when I'm fully present and engaged here, Everything is, is as is. When I'm not, it feels terrible. It's life's way of saying, look, you're here to live and be fully present. Uh, and this is the, the power of it, the, the, the expression that comes to me at the moment that I've been using a little bit in terms of a rugby analogy is that when you're playing, all the effective stuff and all the powerful stuff happens at the line. When you have a defensive line and you play right to the line. But in order to do that, you've got to head in and you've got to let, let the unknown be the unknown. You've got to let things, as you said, unfold. Now, as soon as you don't want them to unfold as is, you want to control them from the position of your identity so that I can have this afterwards, I can still be me afterwards, then you just play deeper. And you may do things nicely, but they have no impact. And it may look nice, but it does nothing. And at the end of the game, you come off and you think, I've done nothing. Now, you may have done all the lovely things, put some kicks here and done this, but you come off and there's something that says, I can't bear this. I have to go to the line. That's my whole point of playing this game. Because <clears throat> when you do, things unfold, you respond, and it's always a moment that people come off the field and say, how on earth did I do that? Whether it's the idea about playing the ball late in cricket, whether it's watching it all the way onto your thing, whether it's looking through your feel, whether it's in tennis, you know, like just the, the looseness and watching the ball right onto the racket, whatever it is, there's this deeper, intuitive understanding of the game plan that's allowed out, and it doesn't ever let you down. And this is the, the power of that relationship with the unknown, the relationship with challenge, which says that I want it. But there has to be this ease with it as well, not a want that's now a new problem to have to solve. And playing, even if you do stand back, <clears throat> and like you mentioned in me kicking a ball, you stand back, you receive the ball. When you kick the ball, you kick the ball at the line. So I can stand back from the defensive line and perform a skill, but I perform the skill at the line. What does that mean? Is that I don't perform the skill through my mind. I perform the skill absolutely, completely present and engaged, which means that you cannot have any guarantees of how it's going to turn out and be fully engaged. So you have to choose which one, and that's the ultimate control. When you choose to fully engage, you find out and your learning experience just takes off incredibly. But if you wanna do it through the mind and think, all you do is shape an identity which burns out and also never feels confident and never feels equipped to deal with what's there. Whereas the, the now version of who we are is always equipped.
1: It's, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I remember <clears throat> playing cricket for England and I often talk about this moment being the reason I started studying psychology, I was playing in front of 120,000 people wow. uh, in, Australia. in India, um, in India. Wow. And, and you know this massive moment. I'd just run out Freddie Flint off, the only chance <laughs> of England winning the game. Uh, and I'm standing in this cauldron of noise, just thinking, what have you done? Yeah. And, and I was so fixated on what the papers were going to say, what you know, the TV commentators were going to say what the consequence of us losing the game that we were still playing in at the moment mm. and I hadn't faced the next ball, but I mm. decided in my catastrophic thinking that we were gonna lose, I was gonna lose my job as an England cricketer, maybe even my county career and have to sell my house. I'd sort of gone that way. Yeah, far down, my, yeah. And my wife had probably left me as, well as part of it. So it was, <laughs> what hadn't uh, gone yeah, wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so that chain of thinking happened really because of the fear of failure. And, and then as a result of that, I lost control of the moment. And didn't even, I mean, Harbour Singh was difficult to pick as a bowler at the best of times. But when you're not watching the ball because you're thinking about tomorrow's headlines, then, then that's even worse. And I don't think we'd ever talked about our mindset and talked about where our thoughts go and talked about this zone of being in the moment. But it sounds to me like we try and control everything so that we can stay safe in our identity. But actually the real success and the moments of great exhilaration are when we trust ourselves. We trust ourselves to find a way to win or we trust ourselves to explore. And actually, we might not regret being beaten by somebody better as long as we were present and had a go, but I have regrets about times when I couldn't get into the moment and I was so, you know, sort of, I was engineering something and and not being brave enough and letting go. I think those are the moments I regret more than yeah, definitely. You know, being beaten, I don't know. How, the, the, how do we trust ourselves more then in these situations? I,
0: I think for me it's really interesting because the we're always going to have to do it at some point. You have to trust yourself and, and the more you put it off, the more there is to lose. So essentially the story becomes the harder it is. It's not really any harder. Letting go, the idea about Letting go being harder is for me is that you carry two heavy bags and you have to unpick everything out of each bag, and so the more you have in there, the harder it is. It's not letting go; you let go of both handles, they're gone. It's instantaneous. But the idea is, is that the more I've got in that bag, the less I want to let go. The more I'm carrying in that rucksack of who I am, um, and the idea that we'll trust later on if we can just get these things okay. If I just get through this game it's just never enough, it's never gonna be enough. Looking after your family, looking after yourself, your own health, lots of that survival, and then there's the bit that steps up a little bit, like, well, you want your house, but which house do you want? I want this one. And that creeps into that kind of social cultural thing. I want it to be this way, I want it to be that way. And some of that, of course, is hugely important. It needs to be recognized, and at times, that does require to step out of that intuitive thing, because what's interested me, because it was part of my kicking in moment, as it were, is that deathbed revelation. People are trying to do it then, it's when they want to trust themselves. And it's mad, because every moment we have is a deathbed revelation. Because what we're essentially saying is that identity is always on its deathbed, but we want it to just live a bit longer, and then we'll let it go. But the identity, as the expression goes, you know, are you um, just living to die, or willing to die to truly live?
1: So how do you balance this tension between staying in the moment, being creative, being intuitive, seeing what happens and backing yourself to adapt with this career planning, or for leaders in business, strategic thinking about, well, we need to get the turnover here, or we need to launch this product, or I want this in my career. So that tension between adapting and you know, intuition in the present and longer term goal setting, how do you balance those two?
0: I think a lot of that still happens Intuitively, anyway. Like I said, there's an understanding, I think, about where we're going that's far deeper than egotistical. It's purpose-driven. There's people we're supposed to meet, and I think a lot of that, the dreams we have from young age, why do we have those? We don't sit there and think, I'm going to dream about this because it's what I want. We find out what we want because it comes through us. We find out the sort of things that interest us because they come through us. and so I think a huge amount of that is already done through the intuitive side. So connecting to that will look after so, so much. Maybe in time, at the odd time, there are logical, deductive, kind of rational decisions that, that feel like they need to come through you know, the mind and what have you. And that might be occasionally the what. You know, do I do this, do I not? Um, and if I do, but it's the how you do it that never belongs to that logical side. That's the bit that I think gets confused here is that you say, oh, well, we need to do that. Yeah, we may need to do that, but how we do it is up to us. We don't need to do it this way. We don't need to just get through it. Oh, God, I've got to go and do that thing, so I'll, I need to do it. It also means I need to just get through it. You don't need to get through anything. You can go and do whatever you need to do, but you go and explore it. Some of those decisions might feel a bit like, okay, it's not exactly what I'd rather be doing right now. But if I explore it, it then transforms into more of what I'd rather be doing. There's no doubt about that. There's absolutely no doubt about that for me in my experience that that when you explore what it is that you have to do, it turns into more of what you want to do as you keep exploring it. The more you hold it in the idea of this is not what I want to do and I do it like I don't want to do it, you end up with more stuff you don't want to do. And maybe a lot of this is about relaxing and, and becoming more sensitive to, if something's coming from something familiar and it has that sort of stress and angst to it, or if something's coming from a more inspired, um, illuminated kind of energized place that feels less familiar, and to start deciding which of those you want to follow.
1: I think one of the key things we're living in a world of so much scrutiny and comparison and judgment and we've got these two conflicting forces, haven't we? We've got, this is what society says success looks like. And we all see that every day on our social feeds and you know, we, we're all falling for that you know, trick, if you like, uh, through the consumer world. Um, and then you've got this ancient sort of Zen mindset, which is about follow your passion, be in the moment and relax. And, and the thing that sits in between that is fear. I guess it's it's the straitjacket that keeps you in your old way of working, in your old habits, in your old beliefs. So, how do you see fear, and how do we get through that, you know, doorway into a a more growth and more opportunity and more curiosity?
0: I think the first thing I think is also ignorance, not in the way that. Yeah, you might call someone ignorant. Yeah, it's not meant in an offensive way at all, but the the inability to even recognize any other option than the way things are now. And certainly for me, for a long time, that was the case. It wasn't that I was sort of like, oh, I could be like this, but uh, you know, it's fear that's holding me back. So I had no idea I could be any different. And the first part of that is the, the, the first layer, if you like, is, a, is the awareness. Of being able to be aware that there's another way in the stress moment to be aware that i 'm stressed rather than the problem is coming at me there 's a threat is to be like i 'm stressed okay now let 's view the threat or i 'm stressed do I need to be this way? do I really have to be this way now let 's view the, th- the 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 threat and I think that is the first part of the of the fear is is the awareness part of um recognizing that this is all taking place within no matter how much the concept is that someone's is making me feel this way and this happening has ruined this and ruined that and what if this happens and but it's okay i'm stressed um, and with that awareness then comes opens up to the deeper element which i think i agree with you is is always fear whether it's fear of failure fear of loss or whether it's fear of of actually just our own power um, but that's I think, such a powerful opportunity because the other thing I think that we have in, in our way of looking at things societally is we have definitions of what fear is. And the first definition is that it's a bad thing. Now, from a physical survival perspective, it's immensely important. But also, I think, in terms of when it's not and it's more in the reputational identity kind of survival way, it carries with it a huge huge message. So because fear is bad, we run from it or we fight it. But running for it, fighting it, solving it, all it does is validate it. So it feeds it and as you feed that fear, it becomes a bigger, hungrier fear machine, which then requires you to do more um, resolving more assurance reassurance, more fighting, whatever it is is your your m o it's going to ask you to do more, so the other part is understanding the fear carries a huge message, and the biggest message that I find in in you know the fear that's not in that direct physical survival space because so many people are, are facing that, and who knows what's that, what that's like, but in that space where we can look at it, it's basically an anti-life movement. And I think when we unpack it, it's full of life. It's full of life and it's an intensity, it's an an energy. And when people find themselves deep in that fear space, there's also a deep sensitivity about it. When you combine those things, a huge energy and a sensitivity with awareness, you're then in a very, very powerful space, um, as opposed to the ignorant space where you can feel quite powerful in relative terms, compared to other people in society with your status, whatever, but you've got no transformational potential in that state. So I think that's really, really big, and um, the the other part of fear I think that I've unpacked from my own experience is that it's a very energy-expensive state, and we have a certain amount of energy within our 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 life force if you like and i think maybe people put it more to do with time but it's not i think it's for me it's it's to do with you have a certain amount of life your life energy and and the possibilities of who you can be and those are being used up simply by heart beating and by lungs filling and by Uh, muscles moving and blood pumping and all these activity, that energy is being used up. And as it's being used up, we're moving towards the end. And this is the ultimate call to relaxation. Because in relaxation, everything opens up, we become more receptive, we open up those boundaries and those, uh, those constricting kind of Ideas that we have to be able to be more of who we are, to receive new messages, to in touch with intuition, but also we're harnessing that life energy in a certain way, but at some point we have to explore that inner um, mechanism for enhancing our energy that means that we can become geniuses in everything we do. the way we talk to people, you know, even in walking into a room, and you start speaking, and you're speaking quick, you're like, "This is energy going and that's fine.
1: What advice have you got to people about fueling themselves and recovering themselves so they can stay at peak performance for those moments of impact, rather than just burning out over the long-term?
0: I think just sharing my experience, the first thing to understand is that relaxation doesn't have to be the definition we have in the way that, you know, you look at, I mentioned before, someone playing in that rugby space with everything going on and the threat of being hit hard in a tackle and all these things happening. And yet within that, there is huge relaxation. The body might not look as we define relaxed, but there is relaxation inside. And I think that relaxation is what I would call um, acceptance, but not, this is the other thing is that Acceptance not something that the identity does. Acceptance is the, if you like, the end of the identity. The acceptance is that space of, if I accept everything as it is right now, there is nothing to do, nothing to be, nowhere to go, in which case the identity is rendered obsolete. And so that acceptance is where the relaxation is so that that surrender, as people call it, to the sporting moment. You have your plan and, and then you just go, right. right, let's go and you surrender. So relaxation in some respects in the recovery space is about the loose shoulders and it's about the deep breathing. And it's about the, you know, the, the absolute kind of ease and the, 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 the slow tempo to everything. It is completely, um, yeah, that deep sleep kind of idea from a physical perspective. But acceptance, that's a physical acceptance. But acceptance can take place on so many levels, and physically the body still has its output. You know, it has to go and burn, you know. You look at some of these runners when they start going. They are so relaxed, but that body's using energy. But it's using it efficiently, and I think um, the, the sort of, for me, the rest and recovery is not a right I hammer my day, and when I get home, I rest and recover, as you've mentioned. Um, the idea is is that I rest and recover whilst I'm doing it. There's a paradox there that can actually be married, that actually I'm present and I'm accepting, and I might have to run, and I might have to get, and I might lift weights, but I'm doing it and I'm fully present. And that's the, the power of it. The, the acceptance and, the, and the, the full presence is that ability to come home from work or whatever it is that you do and not have to flop on the sofa and just sort of, oh God, it's been a long day. Because when you look at it, what have you really done? What have you done in a day? When you look at people, we have meetings. You're like, you're sat in a meeting. You've got rugby players charging around a field getting the threat of being hit and doing this and doing weights, followed by training sessions, followed by kicking, followed by this, going to a dinner in the evening. You're like, okay, that's a physically jam-packed day. And they might get home on the sofa sofa and go, blimey, body's a bit tired. But we get on the sofa with that body feeling of like, oh my gosh, what a day. But actually we've done a sit down, talk to people. It's, it's amazing the energy expenditure that's happening because it's not on the physical level. It's on the level of someone comes in, oh my gosh, it's so-and-so, I need to get this right. And suddenly it's like the emotional, mental side is doing all the running around the field. Sprinting around the field, worried about getting hurt here, worried about this, trying to fix this. And the sense is that whenever we get home or whenever we find that apparent safe space, it's relief. But all that points to, to me, is that if we are living in the now, there's no consequence. So what are you relieved from? But when you're living in the past and the future, especially the future, it's relief. It's this idea of I'm surviving this and I've managed to survive it. But the energy expenditure of that is horrendous. But in the thriving, people do what they love doing and it might be energetic but it gives them energy, even though it's energy expenditure. Whereas people do something which is so easy physically, but it's something they don't like doing, and it drains them. So I think bringing that presence, bringing that excitement, bringing that opportunity, bringing that curiosity, and bringing ultimately that huge sort of presence and acceptance um, is the way to be enhancing and bringing energy in the whole day, not just when I hit the sofa, or or when I get things just how I need them.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. I can definitely sense that, you know, mental exhaustion that comes from it, certainly with a lot of our clients. And I think what you're talking about is this, um, this sort of burnout that's coming, not not from anything other than self-inflicted really. We blame the business, we blame, you know, the, the economic climate, We've Blame the energy crisis, or blame the costs, or whatever. But it's our interpretation of that. When we've got such a fixed belief of who we are and who we have to be, or who we exactly, have to yeah. become, and those be- those beliefs are held so tightly that now the world and the sands are shifting around us, we hold them and grip them even tighter. And that energy is so um, you know tiring for us. It sounds like that's the tension. So yeah is it that we need to have you know softer edges to our identity and and fight less is is the energy coming from resisting more
0: for me back to the concept of the trust is that we have an idea or i certainly have an idea of who it is i'm supposed to be and want to be and if that supersedes my exploration of who i'm becoming organically if like who i'm you know who, who i am then i'm going to be in trouble and my old idea has always been at times you know, I'm going to be i want to be like this this is the way that life's going to look now if i hold on to that the more i hold on to it the more out of date it becomes unless it's lining up with every single event for I'm, I'm exploring and it never does and it always leads to somewhere better if, you're, if, if I surrender, it always leads to someone better. So you don't end up with that, yeah, you, you want to buy a house and you put your offer in and someone else buys it. Um, or you want to, to have your time just for you tonight, but something happens and you don't get it. It's kind of like, but these things are, they are there to be explored and they are there to lead you into a space of, of something. It's a surprise. It's the whole point of challenge is that it's offering you a surprise, or you get to fight it and get what you want. Um, But in fighting it, we never get really what we want. I had this in my rugby career. I've had, you know, I managed to get to exactly where I wanted to go and it was brilliant experiences. It's never done. Didn't get me to what I want. And I think that's a really powerful understanding is to, to understand it's never going to be done. A good momentum is I'm feeling better and better about myself. I'm feeling more and more free, I feel more and more connected, I feel more and more present. But the, if you like bad, if you, I don't even like using the word, but unhelpful would be I'm feeling more and more isolated. I, I, I just feel, I don't feel good. And if you work on those kind of parameters of saying, well, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna feed what feels good. And that's so difficult because we are so built upon what we see for our triggers in terms of what's good and bad, even to the extent that me as a kicker or guys that I work with now, you'll say, right, I just want you to tell me, you know, whether this is a a good kick for you. And they'll kick the ball, and they won't be able to tell me whether it's good or bad until they look.
1: The, the new approach and philosophy and mindset that you've got now, how do you look back on your career? Because all the stories of you were the workaholic, perfectionist. The book that you wrote was The Perfect Ten. I mean, it's a beautiful oh, yeah. the, the, My world, yeah, yeah, my world. The video I was in was a Perfect yeah. Ten, yeah. Um, <laughs> Either
0: way, you've got me on those. So,
1: so, you know, this idea of perfect performance, if you like, as one mindset. How do, you, how do you look back at that now?
0: With fascination. I look back and I, I love it. I love it because it's exactly what was and what was supposed to be. It's not relevant to me now anymore. It's not relevant to me in terms of who I am. So I'm able to view that me like, essentially like you know, like a, a young me, a child as it were. To look and say, <clears throat> I have deep respect for going about my business the way that I did then. And I look at it and I, and I have nothing but, if you like, admiration. And also it being the same energy that drives me now was driving that. I said this before, is that underneath my identity, I think I have this strong energy which already has some kind of, I don't know, it, has, it seems to have something in it. And when it was pushed through the, the constructs of that personality back then, that's how it came out. I feel closer to its source. And I still know when I'm trying too hard, now I can feel it when I force, when I try and, when it just feels a bit, oh, I'm forcing this, I'm in the way of it. And I can feel that what was back then was that there was so much coming, but a lot of me was in the way of it. And therefore it came out in stress. You can hear it in the language. You can hear it in the, um, you know, the talk. All it was was pressure, expectation, um, fear of failure, uh, you know, all the challenges. And you look at the stress that was on the body all the injuries, you can see all that coming out. It's just pure conflict between this energy that has to come out and me saying essentially, um, I'll do it, not you and that stress, whereas now I'm much more out the way of it, but I still feel it. There's times where I feel it, and it's so important to be able to, to awareness, notice it, and then accept that it's okay, and then be able to respond accordingly, to be able to say either, actually this isn't what I'm supposed to be. And if it is where I'm supposed to, and, I, and if I can move, I will, but if I can't, it's not how I'm supposed to be. So I'll move me in it. But back then I, I actually took, a lot of strength and motivation from being in the way of it. I had the the savior archetype, the, the martyr archetype. If I was suffering, it meant I was on my way. If I was suffering, if I was the one that was feeling a bit down and isolated, it was like, this must be good. This is how it's supposed to be. Those were the beliefs. You know, physically and mentally and emotionally, it resulted in breakdown, and so now I learned have been sort of recognizing a, a new and alternative way, but um, I still can feel that as part of the 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 shift and the 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 evolution of me. And and to continue that for me is to continue just to get more out of my own way and see what's coming out as opposed to as we were talking about earlier, control it.
1: It's really interesting that a lot of elite athletes and performers that I've interviewed for our content is. sort of an insecurity and a drive and a hunger that almost can't be satisfied that gives people that obsession that drives them to train physically or that drives them to be a you know an expert in music or whatever it is those thousands and thousands of hours of repetition that it ultimately takes to get the muscle memory and the instinct into that shape but then we get that trajectory swinging up where the person achieves fame and success and they get all the adulation that perhaps they dreamt of years before but almost then the success becomes such a burden that now i am the ceo of the global bank or now i am a world famous rugby star and it's almost at that point that there's more to lose by failure is is that ultimately what you felt like and and that obviously the world cup drop goal in that moment how did that feel through that journey
0: i think To sum it all up, it's all part of the path, all of it. Absolutely every single part is beautifully designed. Like you said, you could take everything away and just see, almost as a conditioning, what that message has done. I spoke to someone recently who was saying that they experienced such anxiety, but in that anxiety, it was the only thing that got them to write expressively and they felt they found out that that expressive writing seemed to be quite impactful and certainly for them and for for other people you're kind of like wow would i have done that without the anxiety was it life saying i need you to do this this is the only way i can get you to do it you mentioned about building up those muscle pathways if you have that kind of shall i go to the gym or not and it's really down to you you know when you go to the gym you break your body down In a way, it's self-harm. Through your eating and your sleeping and your your rest and relaxation, you build it back up. But going to the gym is self-harm. So when you're feeling in that space, you don't see too many enlightened masters sort of fully, physically kind of sculpted. Because there's an understanding that there's an easier way to do it. So if you're gonna play that sport, the life finds a way to say, if you're gonna play this, this is how you need to be. There's so much of that that's so powerful and that intelligence is working the whole time. But for me, which is why I look back and think there's no other way for me to do it, but now there is because I have the awareness. And now with that, I start to ask myself the question, what is it I really, really want? I have a little bit more of a say in that. But yeah, undoubtedly, Looking at it back there, even the injuries that happened over the space of four, four and a half years, they were a massive message, which I didn't take on board um, until I was ready to take on board. So they just kept coming and kept coming. But all of this, if you look at it as being that, just like you said, this message, even the win you mentioned, the fairy tale ending, so powerful, so great, but so what? just another message. And then the fame and the kind of like, well, the adulation, but then the pain and the suffering. It's like, yeah, of course. But to play with that and to join in with that in full presence and engagement is the answer, not to try and change it because it's going to get what it wants anyway. The simple question is, are you going to get on board with it and enjoy the ride or are you going to fight it? And maybe fighting it when you fight it this is part of the acceptance, is what you're supposed to be doing in that time. So that you can then accept. So that it becomes so painful that you have to accept. Who knows, but there is definitely this massive part of awareness is part of playing with it. If I'm aware of it and I start to accept, I'm basically saying, okay, let's see where this goes. Doesn't mean it's going to feel any easier. It doesn't mean the thoughts go away, all the, the stuff you talk about when the thoughts are there and you have your, the idea that you just allow them and the feeling's there, but you allow it, you, it doesn't necessarily mean it goes away. It's still, you know, not a, it's not a pleasant feeling, but it's just a feeling. But the ability to to go with it, I think is, is hugely, hugely important. And when you go with it, I think you, I don't know, it feels like there's a faster evolution. Maybe I didn't need four and a half years of injury. Maybe I could have done with two, yeah, maybe one. And maybe um, I can enjoy this evolutionary process a bit more and I can find out more of it while I'm alive this time.
1: I was very lucky to meet Gordon Banks at one point and just, we were at a sports dinner and, and I asked him about what his emotions were like at that moment yeah. when the the 1966 yeah. World Cup. Um, and he said, relief. Really? And I thought, isn't that bizarre that this is, you know, a top class international sports person in this iconic transformational moment, not just for him and the team, but for the country potentially in terms of, you know, your optimism and pride. And all he felt was relief. Can, can you talk us through those moments up to the drop goal and the whistle blowing and, the, and maybe how that um, emotion rose or subsided as the champagne dried?
0: The, um, I spoke to someone recently in a coaching role who was saying, about the same kind of thing. It says that, speaking to some players, asking them what's their favorite time of the year. And it was always the four weeks they get away in the summer. And you kind of say, oh, you know, you might be in the wrong sport. I mean, this is mad. You're playing in front of, you're playing the sport you love with people that you share so much with and that want the same thing. And you're being challenged on the highest level. And you, it's, it's and the life, it's phenomenal and yet, what you look for is the best time is when I get to go away and do the stuff and it's interesting it's a very interesting process for me um, mentioning about the acceptance in terms of that world cup final is really important because Australia kept leveling the game but there came a time at the end of extra time where Flatney was kicking for the pose and it was, I think, 17, 14 to us. And there may have been the odd moment of, like, oh gosh, you know, we were just about to win the game there, what's this about? But there was also this sense of, we want him to kick it so that we can go win this game. And there was this acceptance that if he kicks it, this is what we're going to do. If he doesn't, all right, we'll win the game. There was no kind of, please don't kick it. Oh, if he kicks it, we might do this. And what if we go to this? And what if it goes to bloom and drop, goal, shootout, whatever it was gonna be. It wasn't there. It was that straightforward acceptance of like, it is what is. And then there was this kick into the power of clarity and full engagement in the next moment to say, right, it's gone over. Everyone just went, this is what we're doing. There was no living in the past about, oh gosh, you know, who who gave away the penalty? And what about this? It was just, oh, what mistakes have I made? And what if we don't win this? And as you mentioned before, it was just, okay, go. And so we kick off and we run through this play, essentially, of getting them to put the ball out into the line out. We run their line out, we go, Matt Dawson breaks and we get to it more or less under the post where it comes to time for me to kick. And had I been in a identity based mindset operating through the mind, through thought in any way in that final moment, I think I would have froze. I don't think it's actually possible to carry that much weight and operate mentally. It had to be absolute full presence. It had to be, you know, the the hundreds and thousands probably near on a million balls that might have been kicked before that moment and that was only up until I was 24 all of the passion in that something takes over that when the ball hits you in the hands from that moment there I became a passenger a very very engaged you know viewer witness of of the event I was feeling it that's how much of a witness I was I was feeling it I was seeing it I was so present, but I just wasn't doing it. It wasn't the identity doing it. It was being done through me. And it seems kind of romantic to say that, but there are times I think when life knows that that's the way it's supposed to pan out. And as a result, I remember seeing the ball drop and thinking, yeah, if I did, or just recognizing that the way the ball dropped was like, okay, that's how this is gonna fly. Knowing everything about that and then watching it fly to the extent that the, The evidence i have for this was at the time how i was feeling but after that i know i sort of didn't even start to half celebrate until the ball was through way through and suddenly i felt like i just kicked back in identity came in and was a bit like guys guys we've got to get back get back get ready we must catch this kickoff you know suddenly i was into that but but it was pure silence when it happened and then my favourite moment of the World Cup when Mike Katz smashed the ball off the field and it's not quite gone off yet. The referee's reaching for his pocket and there's nothing anyone can do. But you're just short of the summit. You're one step short of the summit and nothing's stopping you from taking that next step. There's that there's the absolute knowing of your being and your worth and your deserving. In a, this is a bit of a real world sense as opposed to the deeper sense, but that's what it felt like on the inside was that you recognise your, your absolute... Worth and it's untouchable, and so that's the bit I bottle up. As it is, the ball flies over, and the ref blows his whistle, and it turns into ecstasy and adulation beyond belief. But it still doesn't match that moment just before. Standing on the summit does not match that connection to knowing that the summit is within you and always is, it's always the next step away. The physical devotion to that win isn't the same it's powerful it's so powerful but it's not the same thing And with each step that went round the field on the um on the lap of the other, the lap of honor with each step that involved you know the after match uh sort of interview and and what have you you're ebbing away moving away as you get deeper into that sense of i've done it we've done it is different to the full engagement respect of it. And and as you move with each step into the going home and into the bus tour and into the meeting these guys is brilliant. But now you're moving so far from it. And to have touched it and to feel that movement away is 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 difficult. And then you add in the fact that the old you kicks in with all its old problems, you know things aren't right, this shouldn't be happening, this is unfair, I never wanted this, I just want to get back playing, neck injury, and you're like, wow, this is such a powerful thing. But it was never about the external. And the realisation has been is it doesn't need to be a moment before a win when no one can stop you. It doesn't matter what's happening on the outside, you can be just one step short of that summit in that feeling of just what it is to be alive is that, opportunity to feel like I'm this worthy and this deserving of what I, of what I really want, but I don't need what I want. That's the point. But having something I do want is all part of that connection. And that, that I think was the, the big shift and part of, you know, essentially, um, the journey and like we've said before, you know, the amazing intelligence that's guiding you towards, I think, revealing more of, 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 what you're really here for.
1: So, do you think that's? I mean, it's an incredible story and brilliant to hear that through your senses as well as just your eyes. But do you think that is a metaphor for us all then? That we've got these sort of summits in us, and um, you know that there's actually these moments. The striving is the key. That's the that's the real element we need. Where yes, set your goals, but actually really immerse yourself in the process. Because often when you get there you know, it's perhaps not what you thought it was going to be anyway.
0: I think that's the point, is that we match the two. That we think that arriving at the summit on the outside calls off the search on the inside. And when that happens, we we feel it painfully. There's nothing worse than arriving. Whether it's arriving at the idea that you're not worthy or arriving at the idea that you're the best. Arriving is the problem. Not the idea. And I think that the, the curiosity um, and the sense that you're, every moment is an opportunity to connect to that awesomeness, but you're never supposed to ever, no one ever does reach that awesomeness. And I think that's, yeah, that's undoubtedly for me the point of life, and setting goals on the outside is a representation. I think of what's happening on the inside, which is we recognize that we have this immense worth, but we're never going to quite be there. So on the outside, we're constantly searching for that immense worth, but we never quite get it. Even when we do arrive, we're like, it's not enough, we want to keep going. And it's inevitable that that's going to continue. It's a beautiful thing, that desire is never going to go away. Um, but there's, that's the point is that to follow the passions on the outside, but to keep coming back to finding that as close as you can to that absolute deserving that that being alive is, is the greatest gift there is.
1: You talked a little bit about that chemistry and decision-making in the team. If you had any advice for business teams or you know, military units or orchestras or, or sports teams, what are the characteristics, do you think, of a, of a high-performing team?
0: I think, I, I mean, yeah, you've mentioned some incredible institutions there that, certainly the military that have this, they have amazing ways of doing this already. Um, But certainly something that just rings true to me is that when people feel that they are, that there's a place for them, that there's opportunity for them, when people feel like they can grow, that they can be themselves in an environment, it translates to being valued. I think people think we need to let people know that they're valued it means going around saying, you know, you're doing great and everything, which is, you know, which is, which is nice, but you, that's not necessary in the team that we're in. What allowed everyone to feel valued was that they felt they had a place in that plan that they were important, in that they had a way of following their passion, that there was excitement in it. And I think that's the difference to when people feel like they're just there to hit expectations. And with that comes great decisions. When people feel valued, it's, it's, it seems mad to me that people talk about or try to teach or help people understand good decision-making without it ever starting from a place of like, well, hold on, when do you make good decisions in your life? Oh, well, I'm feeling good. Right, do you know what decisions you're gonna make until you're feeling good? No. Well then, we have gotta get you feeling good. And your decisions will come. As opposed to saying, screw feeling good. These are decisions, this is how you make a good decision. It's like, but hold on, get someone feeling good see how their relationships are, see how their their decision-making is, see how their leadership is, see how their performance is. Uh, There's a slight difference, I think, between feeling good and feeling um, superior and what comes with that, which can be the seeking of power and everything, which is a different type of feeling good, but when people feel relaxed, easy, excited and passionate, just watch them. All of this is the idea of leadership or or decision making that, especially leadership, that it's got something to do that you give or you do for someone else or make someone else. It's only ever about you. And from that position, you then inspire. If you know how you're leading, I think it's probably a, a, a limit than it is, you know, a powerful opportunity to hand over I think, like we said, at playing at the line. If someone says, well, I play the ball at the line, rugby-wise, and I always do this. It's like, no, you don't. What happens when you play the ball? Be honest. I go in there. I'm never quite sure. Interesting. I'm uncomfortable. Yeah. And I go for it. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't work out. Yeah. What happens when it does? Something comes through me. And you want to take credit for this and hand it over to someone else. Instead of helping them to say, look, in this environment, we're okay with that. As long as we're looking after ourselves, aware and and conscious and whatever and and coming from a position of love and, 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 you know, kind of ambition. It's crazy that people talk about leadership when you say, well, how have you led? It's like most of my leadership, my best leadership's come from stuff. I have no idea how it happened. And all I know is that what it took to get to that stage to help make me okay with that has been this. And that's the environment we talk about. Create an environment that allows people to go into the unknown and face challenge and let them come out. But if you already know what their potential is, that's never going to happen.
1: So how, how would you describe the best coaches? Because there's this move where we want everyone to be empowered and enabled and be able to make decisions for the team and adapt really quickly. And the old command and control style, which basically told everybody what to do minute yeah. by minute. And there's this tension where we need to let go a little bit and create that space for people to grow and become leaders themselves. So what's your experience as the, of the best coaches and, and what do they do to, to help you to thrive in that kind of environment?
0: So I think the best coaches are kind of very good at mixing people and things together, game plans, people finding those combinations that work at that time. And so really good at managing that, and really good at um, understanding where the environment stops and where the individual you know, starts. So not crossing that line to start um, suppressing an individual, um, but allowing to, to dictate an environment. You, know, you make decisions around, well, well, when are we gonna have meetings? Okay, well, what sort of environment do we want to create with these meetings? And what do we find if someone turns up late to a meeting? Okay, well, rather than it be a case of you must do this, but start to understand the person individually. So I think coaches have that capacity to, to combine the universal, the one size fits all, because that's how it has to work sometimes, but with the individual uh, relationships understanding individuals, taking time to really get to know individuals so that there can be this universal, but within the universal, the subtle nuances of allowing people to still be them, that allows people to realize that, no, it doesn't mean that you just do whatever you want, but it means that you can be whatever you want. And it doesn't mean that, um, you know, for you it's different. It means, no, that we're all different, but we have this structure that has space for us all. Those kind of things mixed with always creating new space for opportunity. Responding to challenge, understanding when to press harder, when to take the finger off the you know, the button and sort of say, look, time to relax. All of those things, huge. Um, I remember Clive Woodward, actually. Um, I mean, I've, I've had some immense coaches in my life here, you know, notably Steve Black and Dave Ward would be, yeah, two of the absolute sort of most personal ones. Uh, but you know, I remember with Clive after the Wales game in the quarter final of the two thousand and three World Cup, we were pretty terrible in the first half and then came good in the second half, um, or came better in the second half. And in the press conference afterwards, there was a lot of um, in, a lot of people really focusing in on that first half and sort of saying, "Geez, you know, how did the wheels come off? What's happening?" And I remember. sat next to clive and he just said yeah very much explicitly we'll beat france next week which was a very bold statement that wasn't his usual way but for me it kind of shook me out of my i was sat next to him on the top table and it shook me out of my my sort of uh reverie you know my daydreaming that i was doing about the game i suddenly like geez what did he say then i loved it it was right because all the energy was saying, oh, the wheels have come off. And here was a guy who was not just saying it. I could turn around, and as I saw, I was like, he means it. This isn't a strategy. It's not a plan to say, well, I'll go in and do this, and that'll help this, and that'll look after the press, and then we can go and deal with our problems. It was like, we'll beat France next week. And I remember looking the same way that Martin Johnson turned around in the tunnel before we went out for the final between Australia and England. Um when he normally says his last piece before we go out through the doors and the Australian team's lined up beside us and he normally stands there with the ball in his hand, you know, huge hands, tiny ball and says that last call to to arms for us to head out and he turned around, I could see the Australian guys watching him as well and he just looked and went, turned around and ran out. As in like, we're good. And he meant it. This is the point there's all this leadership stuff and and all the decision making and all the coaching it's only ever true if you mean it so there's no good saying how do I get my team to to play well well do you really care about them all of them, every single one, even the one there that's playing up at the moment because maybe they're feeling a certain thing about their worth and do you still care about them I do really and that That acid test is on play all the time. Do you care about them? Do you really, really feel this is the case? Are you really, really present or not? And I think when you get those things right, things do look after themselves. But that's everyone's job is to be like, shit, do I really mean this? Do I really, or am I just doing this so I can get something out of it? Am I, this is this relationship, am I using someone so I can get this out of it? Am I doing this, or as I'm doing this right now, is this about how people will see me and stuff I can get, or is this real? And that's back to that presence, you know, because if you're living a life of a 100 years, you're gonna waste it. If you're living a life of one moment, if you're willing to die right here and now, that'll last forever.
1: It's been, absolutely compelling and fascinating if you've got one sentence of advice of all the things you've learned about how people can strive for success but still live with this contentment and um you know feel good about what they're doing what what one piece of advice would you give as we close
0: i think summing everything up in in one is always going to be difficult especially for me i like to talk my way around my... (laughs) I like to explain everything. Maybe a a habit of too many interviews, the possibility of being misquoted, that you like to just really hammer the point. Um, But I think, I don't know, probably from my perspective, I can only go as maybe what's most relevant to me now. Um, But it's... (laughs) It probably... For the first time ever, I'm not gonna answer it. I deeply, deeply mean this. When you ask questions, always something comes up in me, straight away, and I can feel it. And it's not something that, it might sound, I might have said a few of these things before, but it's not something that comes from memory. I don't think, oh, I'm gonna answer this to this question. It just straightway comes up for me and, and I'll always be able to think, yeah, I feel that, let's go with it. But nothing's coming up for that. I don't have that answer. I think this is the point is that probably what's coming through is that if I give anything now, it'll be about, this will get me something. But the fact is, is, you've got to mean it. If just, it just it it has to be true. If you want to, if you want to find out what you're capable of, you have to let go of what, of, of what's in the way already. And you can't let go conditionally. That will always be the question: How much do you want it?
1: So maybe that's the most authentic answer everything you've spoken about is moving out of this rigid box where you've got rules and beliefs and structures mm-hmm. and identities <clears throat> but actually what you're saying is live in the moment explore it and and you're on this continual um you know journey of curiosity to find out more so we're fascinated to watch this space and, and see what comes next and you've got uh, some amazing projects lined up and your podcast i am is a Huge success already, and I'm sure it'll go from strength to strength, but thanks so much for your time today, Johnny. It's been a real privilege to meet you and spend time with you. (laughs) My pleasure. Well, if you're still with us after an hour, I'm guessing you've been gripped by Johnny's insights. Well, that's two of us. I really didn't expect things to unfold how they did. I just wanted to keep him speaking. Even on that last question where there was that massive pause, I didn't want to jump in. I just wanted him to explain what he was thinking. It's clear that Johnny's always been intense and a deep thinker and having learned that his perfectionism actually cannibalised his flow and enjoyment, he's exploring a different route, one of acceptance, of curiosity and living in each moment. I'll share my key reflections as I listen to him and I'd genuinely love to get to hear from you and maybe share your thoughts on what you took from the podcast Because when you create one of these episodes, you sit in a quiet room with your musings, but you have no idea what people think unless they take the time to write a post on social media or drop you an email or a review. So here are my thoughts, and I'd love to hear yours in time. The first one was that idea that the more rigid we are about our mindset or our identity, the more rules we have, the more stressful our life can become. We all know how uncertain and how unchangeable things have been and having less expectation can actually be liberating. There's that famous quote from Bruce Lee where he talks about be water, be formless and shapeless, but adaptable. Whereas I guess the opposite is being a block of ice, rigid and restricted, unable to adapt so we have painful chunks cracked off us as our environment changes. I genuinely loved Johnny's story about being a number 10 in the middle of the field, in the thick of the action, running through the traffic on the pitch with gaps opening up and closing. Players diving in front of him and screaming and shouting, all moving at pace, so complex, so fast, so chaotic. But to him, that felt peaceful, instinctive, responsive until the whistle blew for a penalty. And then all of a sudden, all eyes were on him. Now he was out of flow, thinking of the consequences of missing the kick. He needed that armour of control to protect his self-esteem and reputation as the perfect kicker. That inner critic came in. What if you miss? What if you fail? What will be left of your perfect image if you miss this? So the control, the routine, the measured steps, the crouch, the metronomic kick became a cocoon. A safe place of predictability and precision to guarantee that his ego would survive the ordeal. But that static ball aimed at static posts was far less demanding than what he'd been doing a few minutes ago. But it had this binary judgment attached to it. You're a winner or you're a loser. So to have this shift in thinking, we must be seeing the penalty kick as a bigger moment and having consequences. So I wonder what that is for us. Is it that speech in front of our board? Is it putting our hand up in a meeting? Or is it an exam that we face as a student? And that's when we start to tense up because we're actually starting to think about the consequence of a mistake rather than doing the thing in the moment mindfully and creatively and immersed in actually the challenge in front of us. So it was interesting to contrast that ...need for control with the penalty kicks when the game stops... ...with that drop goal that won the 2003 World Cup... ...because of course that came in open play under such scrutiny... ...but it was more natural, it was more instinctive... ...and as a result, less thought of self-preservation in that split second... ...it was just instinct... ...and of course he dropped it onto his right foot and nailed it. It was also fascinating to hear him talk through those pivotal seconds... ...through his own senses... And his favourite moment being the four or five seconds between the ref reaching for his whistle in his pocket and then blowing it. That was the moment that no one could change their destiny. And then after a frenzy of celebration, the emotions waned and the burden rose. Now he really was someone. He was a World Cup winner. No, he was the reason England won the World Cup. He was the perfect 10. And that welded an inescapable identity that weighed heavy on him. I think Johnny's point about the mental exhaustion people feel from shuttling between the past and the future with all that worry and anticipation of the stresses and judgments is absolutely spot on. I've been delivering lots of keynotes and workshops in corporate audiences this year, and many of them have covered these elements of stress and burnout Because we need to learn how draining the pandemic has been so that we can manage our own emotional energy like an athlete would maintain their physical energy. We can't innovate and drive performance across our cultures if we're mentally fatigued. And I think that's a huge challenge for businesses as we move into a new year. Johnny's insights are so topical as we watch these huge games of rugby on the TV. It provides a unique insight into what really goes on inside the mind of some of these stars. We expect them to be perfect every day, especially in those clutch moments. Johnny's work ethic and obsession with perfection made him a global success. But he's actually giving us a strong message that there is a different way. By taking ourselves less seriously, having less expectations and rules and exploring what's right under our nose, we can not only deliver our most instinctive and highest quality performances, but we can also have more energy and more fun. Johnny's fascination with mindfulness and flow touch on a few Buddhist principles, and I'm fascinated to see his adventure unfold in the coming months and years. His podcast, I Am?, focuses on all of these areas, so I'll add a link into the show notes for anyone that's interested. So a massive thank you to Johnny for adding his interview to Sporting Edge's digital library. I know that many leaders are gonna love using his video insights and strategies with their teams. And a massive thank you to you for tuning in. If you'd like to send through some of your reflections, then connect me in on LinkedIn or social media. And if you want to get a hold of me for any support on keynotes or digital content for your business, then you can reach me at hello at sportingedge.com and I'll come straight back to you. Please do share this with any rugby fans in your network and have a great week. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at
0: sportingedge.com.